everyone. Thank you so much for joining today to talk about the discussion forum called uh, Rethinking Revolutions. Uh, to start off, Sarah and George, could you each tell us uh, what you see as the key contribution of your book to theorizing revolutions? Sarah? So I think that the book itself kind of started uh, from my experiences with the 2011 Egyptian revolution. And I think that as I was uh, starting kind of the dissertation project and that eventually turned into this book, I was much more focused on what had led to this particular revolution. And I think as I was doing the research uh, 1952, so that kind of anti-colonial revolution in Egypt kept kind of cropping up in really unexpected ways. And I think one thing that I really wanted to try and do with this book was to think about kind of connections, but also sometimes the blurred temporalities between different revolutionary moments in Egyptian history. I think a lot of the analysis of 2011 um, focused quite a lot on the decades preceding it. And I was really interested in thinking through how there, were, there was also this prehistory of this other massive revolution that had happened that of course was a big part of public memory and a big part of the way many Egyptians understand questions of nationalism, of social justice, and yet that somehow was always a bit out of the frame. So I think one of the major interventions that I was interested in kind of unpacking was this connection or bringing these two revolutions into one trajectory and what it means to think about these connections between revolutions within one space. But also, of course, uh, since a lot of the book is about um, Gemal Abdel Nasser and this anti-colonial moment in Egypt, also thinking about the connections between anti-colonial revolutions more broadly across um, the global south. Great, thank you. And George? Sure, I'm not sure I can be as fluent as Sarah, particularly at this time in the morning in Australia, but I'll give it a go. I think there are there are three things that I was interested in doing uh, and contributing to. I mean, one was just thinking about the place of revolution in the contemporary world. I mean, there's a lot of revolution around, or at least there's a lot of things that we describe as revolutions. And what I wanted to think about is revolution as a change in practice. So to what extent are contemporary revolutions linked to and different from previous revolutions that we've uh, thought about uh, over the past couple of centuries or so? And how can we then theorize revolution as this changing form? Uh, then the second contribution is to try and do justice to the singularity of each revolutionary experience. The revolutions are effectively unrepeatable in that they happen at a particular place for particular reasons and are conducted by particular people. And yet that there are patterns we can draw out from different revolutions that can help us uh, theorize about them uh, as more than just a single thing. So it's trying to do justice both to the singularity and then the patterns we find in different revolutionary experiences. And then the final thing is just thinking about the international components of revolutions, the basic idea that revolutions are never uh, just domestic affairs. Although we think about the, the Haitian revolution or the French revolution or the Iranian revolution, we put that adjective in front to say they happened here to these people at this time and were conducted by these people. There's a way of kind of enclosing revolutions within that national space that I wanted to break out from, to always think about the ways that these people are influenced by, affected by ideas, practices, trends, dynamics, patterns that emerge from outside. So it's trying to relate local experience with a set of international dynamics and processes. 
Great, thank you both. So uh, to Adam and Alina and Sarah and George, feel free to jump in after as well. What were some of the most challenging responses that came out of the forum? Alina? This is a tough one. So what do you mean by by challenging, right? I'm being such an academic now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like pushing back on terminology. But um, I mean, I think what I what I really enjoyed in terms of coordinating and then engaging individually with each respondent to Sarah's book is the the richness and the you know many layers they brought to an already excellent engagement in Sarah's book, right? So I think, for example, you know, it was interesting to see how without talking to each other or coordinating with each other, they all kind of, there was like this, you know, consensus around a certain topic. And in, in the case of Sarah's book, there were three main areas that they spoke to specifically. And the first one was, you know, a better nuancing of the content of socialism behind Nasser's uh, project, anti-colonial project. Um, so they all spoke to that and they all, you know, sort of, you know, further nuanced and further refined the idea of, you know, Nasser embracing, uh, uh, you know, a, a socialist project. And the second one was the idea of continuity and rupture between various er eras, right? So there's this transition between Nasser to Sadat to Mubarak and, you know, they, they push, you know, back a little bit and they ask what it might take to think of continuity in, in you know, in that way and instead of, of a complete rupture, right, or a complete transition to a different era. And the third one was an engagement with Fanon and with his idea of the national bourgeoisie and its role in the in the in, in the anti-colonial project and in the in the building of the post-colonial state. So you know these are the three areas in which all of the contributors, to a certain extent, you know, unwittingly uh, converged in their engagement with Sarah's book. So that actually like produced an incredibly layered and and nuanced engagement with Sarah's fantastic contribution to the literature. Adam, yeah, I think. Um on the forum and on George's books, there's some uh, overlaps, especially around the question of continuity and specificity uh, and disrupture. So as George was saying, his book really covers a wide historical arc of revolutions. It tries to give us both a kind of theoretical framework for how to tease out what, what a revolution is and how revolutionary contexts or situations might change over time. So I think there's a, so one set of questions about that kind of project as an attempt to try and theorize revolution in a kind of um, long-term way or, or a way that's slightly disaggregated from historical specificity and then how to tack back and forth between historical specificity and, and a more general account of, of revolution that the book but that the book is in, uh, tries to offer and that the project is invested in. Um, so I would say that's one kind of um, question that appeared in 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 the in the essays. Um, I guess the second would be around what you know again related to this question about uh, trying to tease out a concept or a theory of revolutions is what constitutes success or failure and whether that's the kind of uh, language that we might bring to the study of, of revolutions as such. And I think this tacks back, tacks really nicely with Sarah's work, um, given the ways in which post-colonial revolution or anti-colonial revolution is the kind of 
exemplary, often thought of as the exemplary instance of a failed or partial or incomplete revolution. Um, so it's interesting to think about the contemporary re reverberations of revolution in this moment, whether it's the Arab Spring or more recent things in Sudan, elsewhere, as, as similarly having dimensions of the revolutionary project, but trying to think about what, what would constitute an, a revolution in our own moment and how we ought to characterize uh, outcomes in particular as revolutionary or not revolutionary or something in the middle. Great, thank you. So George and Sarah, do you wanna to respond to that? Sure, um, thanks Sarah. Yeah, for me, um, and there were two things that I got from the forum on my book that I wanna think more about going forward. I mean, just as a sort of introductory note, I mean, there is that kind of disconcerting almost sort of disorienting experience of having yourself read at all, which is both a real privilege, but also this kind of sort of peculiar estrangement. I think at one point, you know, Alex Pritchard was saying that I was insufficiently anarchist and Andrew Zimmerman said I was too liberal and someone, I think Sinisa Milesevic said I was too very and I got caught up in all these different personas. And I think my initial response, you know, as, a, as an author was, hold on, but I'm none of these things. And I thought, but of course, that's not down to me to own the word. You know, it's about people's uh, engagement with with the book as a kind of social fact and, and social process in and of itself. So I found that actually highly rewarding, but only from being quite uncomfortable uh, with uh, um, not just the, um, the the content, but also, um, you know, how um, the contributions were framed. And I found that inc an incredibly sort of enriching experience, real privilege. Uh, there are two sort of substantive things, um, one of which Adol mentioned. I mean, this success failure thing is so interesting. And I've had so lots of thoughts about um, what to do with that, um, none of them especially coherent, but I do think we need to think more carefully about the whole notion of revolutionary failure and success. I mean, Adam's book is brilliant on this, Sarah's as well. But at the one hand, revolutions are these kind of unimaginable projects that are bound up with notions of sacrifice. There's a kind of moment of refusal that says, no, no more, enough, we won't go on like this. And there's that second notion at the same time of a kind of project, of a kind of better must come, right? That there's something here that can be better. But that utopia is always over there, always somehow kind of unreachable. And there's a kind of promise that if only this corrupt practice would end, if only uh, we could end a particular type of enslavement or exploitation or debasement of some kind, we could reach the particular utopia. But it is always at the same time kind of out of reach. And I think that notion of utopia and how that's bound up with notions of what constitutes success, failure, a revolutionary project itself allied to a moment of revolutionary refusal is something that I've just started to play around with and percolate through. And I think something that could be uh, really fascinating uh, to think with. And that links to Adom's other point about how we conceptualize revolution in the contemporary world and what would revolution mean today. And I'm still, I'm still in two minds about this, because on the one hand, you could make an argument that says the concept is so debased um, or so commodified or so captured um, that you may as well just give up on it and think about something else. It could be forms of unruly politics. It could be different types of protest. It could be different types of disruption or eruption. There are different ways we might use a partially related vocabulary to talk about something like revolution, but to demonstrate the difference between revolutionary practices today and those big grand capital R revolutions that we associate with modern world history over the past couple of centuries or so. I'd still like to retain 
the concept of revolution, but recognize some of its differences. So I think that kind of modern epic of revolution, that kind of capital R revolution that we associate going back to, you know, the Atlantic age, uh, and then fast forward up to um, the 1980s or 1990s. I think that, that, that epic of revolution probably has gone at least for the moment. We might see filaments of it around which we could talk about, but I think for the moment, at least it's gone. And I think what is instead we have is these kind of smaller revolutionary eruptions of various kinds that I think do have a family resemblance with past experiences of this kind of modern epic of revolution, but have changed the practice along the way. So I don't want to give up on it. I think it's tough. I think it's filled with tension. I think there's lots of difficulties. And I think success, that concept of success and failure actually helps us think through how we can retain something meaningful about the contemporary practice of revolution, about that sense of refusal, allied to that sense of better must come that we see in lots of different movements around the world. And perhaps that there are sort of filaments and, and different dimensions of this that are starting to produce something more recognizable as kind of big R revolution. But I think we're at the beginning of that kind of rethinking and reimagining. And I, I hope and think that, um, that the practice and the concept of revolution, even as it changes, is something worth worth mobilizing around uh, as we start wrestling with some of the uh, the major contradictions of our times. Sarah? Yeah, just to uh, build on especially this question of uh, success and failure, because I think it was, it was interesting uh, writing this book at a time where that was the debate happening about the so-called Arab Spring or kind of the, the revolutions that happened in 2010 and 2011 was precisely this question of were these actual revolutions? Um, had they failed? How do we measure success? And, and these types of things, which often were quite academic debates that kind of almost in some ways detracted away from how people understood what was happening or how people were processing um, those events at the time. But it reminded me a lot of also, at least in work on anti-colonialism in Egypt, this other, um, binary of either this romanticism that we sometimes get around uh, Abdel Nasser and that project, or a kind of a complete disavowal of that project that kind of sees it as responsible for everything that that um, exists today that's kind of violent. And I think, to me, it was really interesting to think instead about the project itself as one that was a contradictory project, but what it meant to put that contradiction at the center rather than to write from either this um, perspective of a kind of a very romantic revolutionary moment or a very violent moment. I think in many ways, uh, this revolution in 52, like many across the global South was both at the same time. And um, I think a lot of the work that I, I think through within the book, including um, Alina's work and Adam's work was really kind of important and pivotal in trying to think about anti-colonialism from that perspective of what was happening at that historical moment and what it means to think about a historical moment from the vantage point of the present um, that of course so many of these things have become even more um, amplified and I think a lot of the responses to in the forum were amazing because they really pushed me to think a bit beyond either continuity or rupture and to think about them alongside one another. And I found that really, really productive to think of how, especially around this question of these national development projects that we see um, across Africa and the Middle East at this moment, that were they Arab, you know, were they Arab or African socialism or were they kind of just a reproduction of, of 
of capitalism, but instead to actually see that in some ways they were both, and there is both this continuity and this rupture. And I think it's quite interesting then to think of what legacies continuity the continuity has produced and what legacies the ruptures um, have produced at the same time. And so I I found the forum really kind of invigorating and and also helping to think past is is it one or the other. Um, and I think the other thing I found really helpful that came up in the forum was was this invitation, I think, to think more carefully about the way socialism was deployed at that moment. Um, of course, many of these projects, like the Nasserus project, did deploy this term socialism. But I was also struck by how there was an entire socialist life, life world at that time beyond kind of the state or these state projects. And I think the engagements were really helpful in thinking, how can we also more carefully unravel kind of a lot of what socialism was at that moment to, to many different people, um, aside kind of from the state-led version that became um, kind of solidified, at least in Egypt. So yeah, that was really great. Fantastic. So then we'll move on to our last question, which is a question for everyone. Um, what do you think needs to be done to better understand and explain revolutions in the field of IR? Um, and I was thinking, Adam, maybe you could start uh, with this one. Sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the uh, really interesting parts of George's book is is this kind of what he calls an intersocial uh, understanding of revolution. And he mentioned it earlier too, the thought that revolutions, we think of them as happening in a bounded space, uh, but they're really products of the interactions between um, you know, a variety of differently positioned actors and not just other state actors, but transnational formations, et cetera. So I, you know, I would like to see more work on trying to think um, of at every level, of, at every instance about what these kind of intersocial or transnational contexts of possibility and conditions of possibility for revolution are. Um, I was thinking about this in relation to Sarah's work too, about what, what role kind of Nasser's uh, third worldism and his conception of himself as a kind of pan-Arabist, a pan-Africanist plays in that project of generating hegemony within, within Egypt, for instance. Um, so I think that would be one. Um, I also, a second thing, I mean, I come at this you know, conversation as a theorist, so I'm really interested in, in concepts. And um, one thing um, George said earlier about how you know, there we can't we can see a like it may be that our contemporary moment no longer takes the form of the epic revolution that we've inherited from the past. But I wonder if thinking about the more fragmented, the small R revolutions of our present actually show us the ways in which that epic form is really was also a kind of retrospective or idealized conception of revolution that in fact the small R revolutions have always been the kind of more dominant or even the, the, big, the big revolutions, whatever, French Revolution, Russian Revolution, were really constituted by small R revolutions added up in a particular kind of way. And, and then to think about what makes them, what made them, you know, uh, those epics that we now come to think of as revolution. Great, thank you. Does somebody want to respond or pick up on another aspect of that? Alina? So I, I want to uh, pick up on something that 
um, both George and Sarah and, and Adam address, which is this idea of, you know, a kind of binary that keeps coming back between success and failure of revolutions and a constant attempt to try to measure, right, if you want, um, the, the content and the impact of a, of a revolution. And I think this is something that, you know, it's still a struggle especially in the field of IR, you know, despite the, the you know, numerous or maybe not so numerous, you know, uh, attempts to theorize or engage revolutions. Um, but I wonder if instead of like, instead of talking about success and failure, we can conceive of revolutionary moments and revolutions as pedagogical moments. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, pedagogical in the way or the content that is given to it by Paulo Freire, right, as, as a transformative pedag pedagogy. And if we can think or, you know, ask ourselves, you know, if we allow these moments to teach us, what would they teach us, right? What are the lessons that, that would teach us? And there is something that I, you know, engage in the introduction to the forum, and, you know, I'm, I'm quoting Naim in Ayatollah's here, where he makes a distinction between crushed and uncrushed hope, right? And he says, you know, when we talk about revolutionary moments in the third world, um, you know, crushed hope is the only viable resource, right? And if we were to sit with that, right, if we were to sit with that statement that crushed hope is the only viable resource, then all of a sudden we don't need to talk about success and failure because we're, we're, we're you know, bringing that discussion around the revolutionary moment and wondering what made, you know, the tragedy of the post-colonial state necessary, right? Meaning we need to start talking about internal contradictions, but we also need to start talking about the weight of structures, right? And this is something that I think we're still struggling to articulate and to theorize, right? The movement between internal contradictions of any given revolutionary moment, and here I'm really talking about anti-colonial revolutionary moments, and, you know, the weight of structures that constantly bears down on, you know, any kind of aspirations or hopes or, or, or plans or visions that, that you know, uh, this mobilization leads to. So these, these are some of my thoughts. Sarah. I could add something quickly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in IR, but uh, sociology also has lots of issues to talk about. But um, I, think, I think I really want to kind of echo um, what Adam was saying and also what I think George's work is so uh, useful in thinking about is how to move beyond particular theorizations of revolution as these really grand events. And I think, you know, even if we think about the revolutions of 2010 and 2011, there was something about the way they were televised and broadcast that also produces them as these kind of epic narratives where I think in some ways moving away from that and thinking more in terms of layers and fragments and moments, but also momentum might be quite interesting how there are lots of moments that build up to that final kind of set of period of time that we then characterize as a, as, as a revolution. Um, but I also, um, based on what Alina was just saying, I think this question of hope and, and maybe affect, not aff, but feeling more general is also something that I'm really interested in thinking about more in relation to revolution than that I think a lot of kind of different disciplines might uh, it might kind of enrich the way we think about these moments is how these feelings of um, 
these feelings have some kind of afterlife that's very difficult, like you're saying, to measure or to quantify or even to know whether this changed anything, but that do have really powerful effects, I think, on people that experience these moments. And I wonder if there's much more to say also about defeat, um, the feelings of failure rather than failure itself, um, and how we might think about that much more in relation to these bigger questions of political economy and development. And I think. Um, the last thing I, I would say is just because a lot of the my work engages quite a lot with kind of the what I call like the global Marxist canon. So, of course, Marxist work that was produced at that moment in Africa and the Middle East. And I think there's a lot that Marxism as a field, I think, can can kind of take away and how it theorizes revolution beyond kind of its traditional understandings that are quite still quite Eurocentric, but to engage much more with this global canon that has so much of this rich experience with revolutionary moments. Um, yeah, and of course, also I also want to thank kind of everyone here, especially kind of Robbie and Adam and Alina and George for the work that you've done, because I think it has opened up, it opened up so much for me and, and, and my thinking around these questions. So I think um, that's it's also great to kind of see more of these conversations as well. George? Um, I'll echo those thanks as well to everybody and also um, the points that Adom and others have picked up on about the relation, long-term relationship between sort of big R and small R revolutions and issues of unity and fragmentation and victory and defeat would be super interesting. So it sounds like we've got a collective project that's formed out of this podcast that itself has formed out of the forum. So thanks to Robbie and Valerie for helping to, to instigate that. Just one thing on revolutions and IR. I mean, my, my point to IR would be you've got to take revolutions more seriously. Um, I mean, they're not just domestic affairs. There's an obvious international dimension. And for whatever reasons, um, IR hasn't done a huge amount in trying to theorize or even study empirically those forms of international dynamics processes and events that are so crucial to revolutions. But if you just look for a moment at recent revolutionary experiences, you can see how central international dynamics are to them. You take Belarus or you take Hong Kong, You've got this presence of this big external power making a hugely important set of decisions about whether or not they're going to allow what is effectively a, pa a patron state to, uh, to have this kind of uprising, if so, for how long, under what circumstances, so Russia on the one hand, China on the other. All of these elites are bound up in transnational circuits of various kinds, whether it's about their money or about their contacts or about their uh, different relationships and ideas and all the rest of it. And then, of course, the movements themselves are enormously bound up with international dynamics, whether it's about the symbols or the affective arc that uh, Sarah was thinking about, the role of music. You know, all of these things are constituted in, in great measure by by dynamics and processes that, that, that transcend a particular type of bounded uh, community, at least one that's bound um, by the nation state. So the international um, dimensions of these are huge and therefore the openings for IR are substantial. And I would hope that people would, would continue the really interesting work that's going on there. And I just say one final, final, final point, which is a bit, it's a bit like Alina earlier, sort of doing that academic thing of challenging the basis of the question. Can I just take a very exam answer mode, the question for a bit of a walk? I mean, beyond IR, 
what for me i think is one of the most challenging things for everybody to think about is the relationship between right-wing movements and revolutionary dynamics something that's often been excluded for all sorts of normative reasons but as scholars as academics thinking about revolution something that i think we need to deal with however uncomfortable that is now there's a historical relationship between right-wing movements and, and revolution we could think about, but just think in the contemporary world about white nationalists and white supremacists and how they think about their own movements and the evocation of not, of not just the concept of revolution, but particular historical examples of revolution, examples which are bound up with notions of, of victory and defeat, of success and of failure, all of the terms that we've been wrestling with um, you might think about also in terms of various islamic groups as well but just you know closer to home for all of us that that white supremacist white nationalist mobilization around revolution i think speaks to a particular part of of the study and practice of revolution which academics have, have stayed away from for all sorts of reasons and i don't think we should because there's an important uh, imperative there uh, for all of us i think to engage with and, and take really seriously Fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone.